Greetings. This is Richard Wolfie Wolf, and you are tuned into Wolf in Tune. Today, I am happy to announce that we've achieved a major coup in snagging Clyde Lieberman. Clyde is the supervising producer of one of the biggest music shows ever to be broadcast in television, The Voice. And Clyde is also supervising producer of another show, Songland. Clyde is very reluctant to give any interviews. He, in fact, has a no-interview policy, no podcasts, no television appearances. He's a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. And we are very lucky to have had Clyde agree to pull himself away from his incredibly, torturously busy schedule to come in and talk to us. Clyde worked many years in music publishing, working with artists like the Wu-Tang Clan and The Roots. And we talk about that and how he transitioned into producing television shows. Now, Clyde is not a formal practitioner of any kind of philosophy or meditation practice. But through his long experience and singular sensibility, he's developed strategies that incorporate the same approaches that you can find in mindfulness practice. So this episode was recorded at the end of 2019, and the season we discuss here is the one that was taking place at that time. We talk about Ramdas, and at that time Ramdas was still alive. He has since passed. So now let's bring it on. The Zen of Clyde. Okay, we're rolling. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you, Clyde. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be in the producer slab. No, it's lab. not the producer's slab. <laughs> oh. It's the producer's lab. You know, when I get... And welcome to the producer's <laughs> lab, by the way, my good friend Clyde Lieberman. Welcome to me. Welcome to you. Yeah. I'm going to give you a brief introduction. Thank you. That's it. It's over. <laughs> Actually, uh... That's how, about... Sounds like my career right there. Yeah. You corrected me at lunch. I thought you were only a two-time Emmy Award winner. You are a three-time Emmy Award winner. I am part of a team and have the Emmys to show it that has won three Emmys, yes. So, and you don't give interviews. Clyde Lieberman is the supervising <laughs> producer, three-time Emmy Award winning producer. That's three times more than my one Emmy. Um, of the number one hit show in the world, I think in the history of television, that's the number one, it's The Voice. And uh, I think it's a global hit, correct? It's probably on... I don't know. I don't quote me. It's on in a lot of territories, maybe 60. And it's probably never been number one ever, but it's had a really great run. What are you talking about? I've read in the trades. It's a number 18, one 18 unscripted seasons, show. 18 seasons. It's the top unscripted show. But we're not number one right now. That wonderful masked singer is doing well. But yeah, we, we just had an incredible run as a TV show that hopefully brings a lot of joy into the homes of America. Right, and you came here because we're going to get some dirt. We're going to get yeah, that's right. <laughs> dirt on really what goes on at The Voice. We're going I don't to think look, anybody get, really cares. Well, I'm sure a lot of the listeners do care. We're going to look under the hood, right, of uh, The Voice. Yeah, we'll and, look under the hood of, of me, and, and I'm under the hood of The Voice. So in that respect, you will see that. Obviously, The Voice is really not a thing. It's really made up of a, a lot of, all kidding aside, it's made of hundreds of people that it takes to make a show like that every week. And it's it's a lot of people. 
There's people doing things that you wouldn't even think about doing. People putting together crane, you know, like jibs and stuff that you just don't What's think about. What's a jib? About. A jib is the thing that allows you to do those big sweeping sweeping shots when you watch TV. And there's all sorts of jibs. There's different levels of jib. I don't, I, this is not my profession. I don't know about them, but they are really special things. And And just the guy who puts the jib together has an incredibly technical job because that thing has to be able to move completely fluid so you don't know it's moving so that you can watch an incredible crane shot but do it inside a soundstage and you know it's it's is is you call the guy a jibber i don't know what he's called but he's a guy who is uh you know all these guys i i just had happen the other day one of the guys who operates a jib was walking by my production table and we just started chatting i've seen him on the set for 18 seasons i don't know his name he doesn't know my name but we are friendly and as much as you can be when there's hundreds of people. And he just invented a piece of gear that allows you to make a camera move in a very specific way that everybody wants it to move. But normally the piece of gear to do that, the technology for it was so expensive that it was prohibitive for a lot of people to use it. And he and his fellow guy who operates a jib have been working on this thing in their shop tinkering for you know so they invented five years. a new way they invented of a new jibbing? it's a new hinge so that when the camera comes down the camera can do certain movements that are so fluid because they understood computer it uses computer technology in a lot of things yeah i'm just saying that like sometimes there's a like on my show the voice among certain people who do what i do music like to say well it's a music show and the musicians should be taken treated a certain way and as a result of that and i sort of have a different look at it it's actually a television show that has music and we're all here together to try to make an incredible entertainment extravaganza and my she's not my boss really but i call her my boss the executive producer of the show who is an incredible woman uh she likes to say she used to say when we first started the show i want everybody to think like you're making an award show every week except we're going to make it in three days instead of two weeks. And mm. so that was always the challenge. Like, can we make something that when you watch it at home, you get that same feeling that you get when you watch the very best music television. And, and that's what we really strive to do. Hire the best mixer, use the best sound gear. Look, we all grew up watching music on TV, complaining like, oh, that sounds bad. The mix is bad. Why is the mix bad? Why can't I hear the bass? Why are the vocals buried? Why does it sound so thin? All the things that we all hated. So when we started doing the show, we all sort of made a pact that we would try to make it the best it could be technically. So that if somebody were in Indiana where I grew up and they happened to put the show on and watch it, even though they were watching through a little crappy television and little crappy speakers, that they would get the best experience they could get out of the gear that they had. And we fought a lot in the beginning. We fought a lot about, does it need to be 5.1? How does 5.1 change stereo? Does anybody really listen to 5.1? Why is the network so concerned about the show being in 5.1 when it's really a stereo experience for most people? Yeah, but people? To the technological angle, which I had no idea, is very interesting. That's just one part of what you're talking about. It's also about the content, right? Yeah, well, well, if you're going to talk about the voice and you're going to really talk about it seriously, you have to talk about, first and foremost, about all the forces at work to make a great TV show. Which are? Well... I'm I'm just going to give you my perspective. I'm not, I've never been an executive producer. I've never been a showrunner. So I see it from my level. And your level is dealing with music. My level is that I'm a supervising producer on a TV show who primarily is concerned with music, but I'm involved in scheduling decisions. I'm involved in technology decisions. I'm involved in clearance decisions. All those things go through me 
But at the end of the day, I put it under the heading of music. Like if you had a question about music on the show, you would come to me. If you had right. a question about wardrobe, you'd go to the head of the wardrobe department, departmentalized. And what's special about you, because they go to with questions to you about music, is because you have an encyclopedic knowledge of music. I mean, that was part of you. Originally, you wanted to be an archaeologist or something like that? I read books. I grew up in Indiana, and I don't know why, but the first book I remember reading was called All About Archaeology. And I remember the stories in the book to this day. And there was one in particular about a guy whose name I'm going to, I'm going to destroy his name when I say it, but a guy named Heinrich Schlielmann, as I remember his name was. It was before archaeology was really even something people study in college. This is in the 19th century, I think. Anyhow, I remember the story is that he wanted to find the city of Troy. Mm -hmm. And after reading, he read the Iliad, he read the Odyssey as a child, and he was sure that they were real places. And a lot of people said, they're not real places. That's a myth. Right. The book was written by Homer. It's a made-up story. And he refused to accept that. Right. So he went looking for the city of Troy. And he studied it any way he could. Academically, read books, went to where he thought it would be, decided it was in this part of Turkey. I think it's called Ilium or something. It's this very specific part of Turkey based on reading the book and was convinced that the stories were real. And? He eventually found what he thought was the city of Troy, and he dug. And one of the interesting things about the history of cities is that many cities have been built on top of other cities. Right, right. So, like, if you go to Rome, there's another Rome right. below it and another right. Rome below that, right. and probably a couple more below it. So, Heinrich convinced you to so dig. So, went and he looked and he found, it was like 11 cities in this place. And he convinced you to dig in the crates, <laughs> right? Instead of digging into Troy. Is that is that the connection? My point is that archaeology and music are related. Yes. And that's really clever what you said. In fact, if you think about it, it's probably true. I would read the backs of records like they were hieroglyphics, right. for sure. Right. Even when I didn't understand what a record producer was, I would note, oh, wow, Shell Tammy, he made this record. Right. He produced it. He must have been involved in some way. Who's Kit Lambert? You know, I mean, those things all were registering in my mind, for sure. And the first time I saw The Who was 1965, you know, and, and just that relationship between what was happening live on stage when you saw a band and what happened when you put on their disc and listened to it. Right. That, that always was super fascinating to me. So that's the context within I think which you're, you're operating as the expert on the voice when people need to know something about the song or the music. Yeah, the context is that I, when everybody else was doing whatever they were doing, I was listening to music. That's the context. And that I didn't have the... I determined that I was never going to be a great player. I don't know why I determined that. But probably because I lacked it in the beginning. I probably just lacked the drive to practice as much as it would have required. But you were writing songs, though. I wasn't. Oh no! Okay. I was just a kid in high school playing in bad, you know, in band and oh. garage bands. Okay. And I tried to learn how to write songs, but once again, I, I couldn't really see into it. I. I just didn't. I mean, I, you know, I listened to the Beatles and I could tell that John and Paul wrote the songs and I was curious about to do it. But I, I will say, I think it was just more, I didn't wake up in the, every morning and go, I got to write a song right now. I was busy being a kid and playing baseball. But in the back of my mind, nothing fascinated me the way that did. Right. But I was in Indiana and there was really no milieu for me to become a musician. I would have had to be an outlier almost immediately. There was, I would have had to say, I'm going to be a musician, find me a music school, I'm going to study music, 
But you were interested in the archaeological angle of it. You were reading the backs of records, and learning what a producer does, who produced, who engineered, who mixed, who mastered, all who wrote the stuff. songs. Who wrote and the as songs. much as you could get that information in those days, it was hard to get. Nothing was more frustrating. You buy a record and it wouldn't have that information on it. That would just oh, you get so angry. And eventually, you got into publishing. And I yeah. know that uh, one thing that sticks in my mind is you work with the Wu Tang Clan. I worked for BMG. The old BMG, which doesn't exist anymore, was eventually sold to Universal. The BMG that people talk about today is a brand new company. Okay. Still funded by the same organization in, in Germany, but a, a whole new iteration of the company. Right. But the original catalog, the BMG music publishing catalog, grew out of an amalgamation of a lot of different catalogs. That's how the music publishing business has always worked. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I was uh, writing songs for them. I was the staff writer. You know, I was signed in 1985 to what would be called a staff. Right. They used to call them staff writing deals. Now it's just called, hey, I'm signed to BMG. Nobody really calls it staff writing. But uh. that's how we used to think of it. It's like, oh, I work for this company. Yeah, I was a staff writer at Warner Chapel. Yeah, okay, same thing. Yeah. So, you know, and sometimes there were assignments and sometimes you just did whatever you wanted right. to do. But the whole, you were you were a freelancer, but you had uh, a, a, a draw, quota. What they would call is a draw and a quote quota. Quota, yeah, a certain amount of songs. Yeah, yeah. And I, I near the end of that, I um, not near the end of it, but as I was doing that, I I one day went to write with a songwriter named Rhett Lawrence, and um, okay, and he was just someone said you should know Rhett Lawrence, and I went to meet him. And he played me a record that he was working on. He said, yeah, we should write together, man. Um, let me tell you this thing I'm working on. And he played me this song that eventually, not the song, but the production that eventually became Vision of Love from Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey, Which yeah. is the song that launched her. Right. And I said, did you write that? He goes, no, it was written, Mariah Carey wrote it with this guy, uh, Ben Margolis. But um, I've been asked by, by um, the record Tommy label, Mottola. Tommy Mottola, mm -hmm. to, to work on the record. He right. thinks that I have, you know, cool production chops. And I've been, I don't know, I think he might've been making Christian records before that. I'm not really sure what his background was, but that's how I met him. And, uh, and he was just starting. And I thought, wow, this is a really talented guy. I mean, like he has such, it was right at the dawn of digital production. And he was so far advanced in his understanding of what the future of digital production was going to look like. Oh, okay. You know, he had already seen into the into the glass darkly, and he, it was starting to. The and clouds you, were parting, and you saw him looking, in, and you were looking into the glass really darkly. Yeah, well, yeah. I just wasn't interested in the the technology. Left me completely cold, right? And I realized I would never be good at it. I was never going to be the guy to program a drum beat. I was never going to be the guy to sequence. I just wasn't fascinated by it, and I was fascinated by the people who did it. But I realized that, that to cross over to be able to do it would have meant a big commitment of, and put me to a place that I didn't feel I was going to be competitive. But this guy was incredibly talented. So the next day I was with my publisher, who was head of the BMG office. He was my publisher. I was his writer. Right. But he was also a person I'd known for years. Right. And I said to him that uh, I met a really talented songwriter. He goes, well, tell me about him. And I told him about it. He goes, well, why don't you sign him? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, why don't you, you can be a consultant for us. You can still be a songwriter, but you go to him and, you know, bring him into the company. And if you do that, you know, you'd, you'd work with him. And that led to the Wu-Tang Clan. That led me to New York, which is how I met the Wu-Tang Clan. And so when you met them, did you say, which one of you is Wu? Which mm -hmm. one of you is Tang? It's Tang? funny you should ask that. There was a guy named Steve Rifkin, 
You got to right. know Steve Rifkin. Yes, I know Steve Rifkin. And he had a company called Lab. Mm-hmm. And he was once again. It's an RCA, right? It was an RCA company, but originally it was just an independent company. He and a guy named Rich Isaacson ran the company. Okay. Steve's dad was in the music business forever. He was back in the 50s promoting records. I mean, this is a guy who grew up in the old school business right. when people did weird stuff, you know? Mafia. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So not that the mafia is not there now, but I mean it was really mafia. Yeah, I mean not not that Steve's family was involved in that in any way at all. No. I'm not even saying that. No, I'm just no. saying that that was going on. Morris Levy, the whole Morris thing Levy. was going on. So Steve knew the business. He knew the street, and he had his ear on the street. When I'd be lying if I said that the first time somebody's saying you should sign the Wu Tang Clan, I went, "Oh yeah, no problem." That's not what happened. You know, Steve came to me, and he said. This is going to be really big. Mm-hmm. And I said, tell me about it. He, mm-hmm. And he said, these guys are making these records. They're selling them out of the trunk of their car in Staten Island. And they're incredible. And you've got to come see it with me. So we went to see them perform. And it was life-altering. Right. It just it threw away every convention. And like art always does when it's exciting. It was just not like anything you'd ever seen before. Right. And that made it immediately, you had to you had to decide right there, am I in with this or do I not get mm. it and I hate it? Mm-hmm. There was no middle ground where you could go, yeah, mm. this is pretty cool, but I'm not, it wasn't like you could critique it. It was like, I either get it and I buy it and I don't care, or I hate it and I'm never going to d- listen to it again. Right. And it reminded me of being a kid and being in the basement and having our amps on 10 and playing as loud as we could, no matter how bad we were, and having my mom go, what the... But my mom was grateful, at least I was in the house playing music and I wasn't out like breaking into cars. So, you know what I mean? Like, there my were a mom lot didn't of them not... at that time, right? How many, do you remember how many people were on stage? Like eight or nine? I want to say more than that. More than But that. I mean, my memory of the moment is vague. What's not vague is my first meeting with Riza, right. which is absolutely fresh in my mind. Because he Riza was. Riza is a producer of. Riza was yeah. the, I mean, I don't want to say the wrong thing because I don't know if this is true, but to us, Rizzo was the person who stood at the top of the pyramid of right. the Wu-Tang Clan. Right. You take Rizzo out of it, it wouldn't have been the Wu-Tang right. Clan. I don't know if that's true, but that's the way it perceived. Okay. That's the way it felt. Because he was, in many respects, the spokesperson for the clan. Right. When you met, you met with Rizzo. Right. You know, it wouldn't have made sense to meet with Jizza and mm-hmm. Method yeah. Man and Raekwon all at one time, you know? Old Dirty Bastard. Yeah, it just wouldn't have made any sense. But, oh, you're Old Dirty Bastard. <laughs> exactly. I've been waiting all my life to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> so I just remember Riza, and I've, I've actually told this story really recently. Riza Robert was so obviously one of the smartest individuals I'd ever met. You must have a list somewhere in your pocket of those 20 individuals or 30 or 10 that you met in your life, and you went, oh, yeah, I'm in the presence of something pretty special. Okay. And I felt the same way when I met Rich Nichols, who, who managed The Roots. Rich, Richard Nichols was the same guy. His life experience and his intelligence had come to this beautiful place where when you talked to him, you got nothing but pure knowledge. It was awesome. And he brought you the roots or you went to him? Once again, the that... roots, once again, you know, you can't leave A&R people out of these stories because I work for a publishing company. I, by myself, wasn't going to change the face of these people's lives. Most of them, most of the time was tied to a recording contract, right? So yeah. in the case of Wu-Tang Clan, Steve was going to make records with them. They already were making their own records and and they had a sound and Steve was going to change that sound. He wasn't a and the records. They were completely a bespoke group. Right. 
but they needed funding. They needed, you know, they needed a music publishing deal. And at that time, people were sampling records left and right. And it was hard to figure out without a publisher, you couldn't even put your records out. You couldn't get the samples cleared. You put them out and the records would get pulled up. As soon as you try to go commercial with your records, they'd get pulled out of stores because samples, you know. So Rizzo is one of the first people who saw that sampling was a dead end. I mean, for sure, he understood, you know, he figured it out really fast. Right. Wow. We got to figure out a way to make these records without without right. that because it's going to hold back the commerce right. of what we're doing. Right. So you, you right. know... Richard, well, you know about this better than I do. Well, I, I think it's fascinating what you're talking about with RZA because that's New York. It's, I, I don't have a special insight into that. But uh, Dre, after the first And They'll Be Where A record, when they were getting used a lot of samples and he was getting right and left uh, annoyed and hassled, uh, he decided, okay, next record we're going to do live. I'm just hiring live musicians. We're going to do it all live, which was genius at the time. I mean, he, he, he's a genius producer. So it's interesting. I didn't know that about RZA. Yeah, um, I think everybody who was a genius, and RZA is up there with Dre, in my opinion. Okay. And, and look, the guys who had beaten it at all were Questlove and, and, you know, and Black Thought, you know, uh, you know, in Amir and, and Tariq in The Roots. They didn't use samples at all. They right. played everything live. They, they were the live hip-hop band. So the night I was taken to see them, or I went, I went down to Philadelphia to see them play. That was a complete revelation because they were superior musicians and Tariq was a superior rapper to me. I mean, he he had, he, he was talking about stuff that was deep to me, right. you know? I thought this is, this is a band, in both, both the cases, and kudos to my boss at the time. We got involved in those bands knowing we wouldn't necessarily make money immediately, that it would be a slog, but that these were important bands. Well, that's interesting that that um, they needed publisher because they used so many samples. Well, I mean, I'm just, that's my way of explaining that in the beginning, those songs, the, it, what you couldn't just, you can't just put out a sampled record. It's got to you know, be cleared. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, they did. They tried. A lot of, of course. people still do. I mean, they yeah. try. So how did you segue mm -hmm. from publishing into The Voice? Well, I made a detour. Music publishing is a really, really good thing to do for a living if you love music. But I also discovered that it, I tried doing A&R at the end of my publishing career in a record company. And it was getting hard for me to still love music. I was starting to feel like really high levels of stress all the time, working around the clock, trying to make records. Yeah. I think I was okay at it. I don't think I was great at it, but I'm talking about on the record side. But what I really noticed about it is that I just didn't, like I was gritting my teeth all the time. It wasn't, even if I was making, whether I liked the record I was making, wasn't making it. It's the only thing that occupied my headspace in that moment. And I, my enjoyment, that the reason I got into it, the archeology span of it, whatever you want to call it, started to dissipate. And I felt like, Wow, this is not really good. This is this is a lifetime of love that I have back to when I had my first job and I was 14 working on the stage of a concert starring Chuck Berry and all the way now to all these years later and it's the first time I can honestly say I don't get up in the morning and I'm just super excited about music. What is going on? And I was just under enormous stress. My record label was 
very close to being closed down. And I really was confronted for the first time in a long time with, I didn't know what I was going to do next. Okay. And I had a contract that was going to run for a while. And uh, a really great guy named Tom Sturgis called me the day after our label was closed and we were all fired. And he called me up and he said, hey, Clyde, it's Tom Sturgis from Universal Music Publishing. How are you doing? I said, wow, it's really nice of you to call me. You know, I'm out of work. So you're the first person to call. He said, yeah, I know what happened, you know. He goes, could you have lunch tomorrow? I said, that's really nice of you inviting me to lunch. You know, I'm pretty down right now. He says, yeah, let's go to lunch. And we went to lunch and he said, we really need somebody like you at the company. And, uh, you know, I could really use you on my staff. You're you're an awesome publisher and you're always a great guy. To, you know, your reputation mm-hmm. is great and we've known each other a long time and my boss wants me to add somebody to the staff. I think you'd be fantastic. And come in and meet the boss and who I knew, Dave Renzer, and and um, you know, and and great and, guy and talk. Huh? And I said, Wow, that's really kind of you. I, I don't even know what to say, you know, like I, I got a I have a literally I had like a two year old, you know, at home. And I said, Wow, that's so sweet, you know. So I, I went and I sat down with them and they made me a proposal. It was perfectly fair money. It, it would have been more than enough to pay my bills. Everything was, it would have been great. And I went home and I said to my wife, I said, Sharon, you know, something, I should do this, right? She goes, you don't seem like you really want to do it. I said, I, I said, I don't know. You know, like I've already done this before. Mm-hmm. It's not that I wouldn't be good at it, but it feels like I'm going backwards. Like, I mean, but I don't have much choice. We, Thankfully, we have enough money right now and I'm going to be paid for a while. So I have a few months to think about it. Maybe I should think about it, but the job's not something you can think about. If I don't take the job right now, I'm going to find something else. She said, well, look, I trust you. You decide what's best for you, but I will say this much to you. If it's not what you want to do, don't do it. I said, well, I never really thought like that before about something that's as real as your family. Right. My dad would never have thought like that. My dad would have thought like, take the job. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way I was raised. You can't take the risk that there'll be the next job. You got to take this job. You got you to pay your bills. You got to feed your family. And so I felt a real through line in my life right at that moment. And so I, I called Tom up and then he, we were talking while I was talking to him, it just hit me. It's like, do not do this. Mm. Not because of Tom, not because of Dave, not mm. because of Universal. They're the, they were fantastic. Right. We're one of the leading publishers in the world. It couldn't have been a bad job. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. was probably never going to move past that if I didn't somehow get over my innate fear of moving past it. So mm. that's what happened. And literally, I got offered another gig two weeks later by another giant corporation, Disney, amazing guy named David Agnew. Jay Landers brought me in for a meeting. He basically offered me his job, said, I'm going off, I'm going to Columbia. Dave Agnew, I love the guy. He's an awesome person. I went to the meeting and then I met some of the other people and I went home. I said the same thing to my wife. I said, money is really good. Job's really good. But it doesn't, this is a weird thing to say. It doesn't feel like what I should be doing. Right. She said, well, then don't do it. What happened shortly thereafter is like literally, like everything happened to me in a period of a few weeks. I pulled up to a meeting at Capitol Records. I was so out of it. I'd never been out of work since I'd been a young adult. 
that I left my car running when I got out of it in front. I was parked on Vine. I literally left my car in gear. I got a, out and smashed in the car in front of me, like smashed the car right in front of me. Mm-hmm. I was just, compl- you talk about mindfulness. I was the exact <laughs> opposite of mindful. Yeah. I was completely lost. Stressed out. I was, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't, I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I couldn't even park my car. And it probably was the best thing that ever happened to me, but it was also really scary for me because I, I I'm like most people, but certainly I have a version of control, you know, issues. So I I had to let it all go because I didn't know where the next job was. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I had no idea, but I just turned down two jobs in my own industry. So what does that tell me about myself, you know? And it wasn't like I had other skills. Like I was going to go the next day and start selling paper supplies. Cars. I could have learned to do it, but it wasn't in my mind. So that's what, where I started. And then somebody called. My wife came home from work. She said, you know, you remember that guy? Remember that girl I used to work with at BMG? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah. She goes, well, her husband is doing a TV show. And they're doing this reality TV show. Hmm. And um, they want to talk to somebody about music. They have an idea about a music show but they don't really know because they're, I said, well, okay, I'll meet anybody uh-huh. right now. I don't have, I'm not working. Uh-huh. So what else have I got to do except go to meetings? And that's how it started. I went to one meeting oh, wow. and, and the executive I met said to me, oh yeah, my wife knows your wife from so-and-so. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, um, well, look, we're going to make this music show. It's called The Casino. It's really not a show. It's a reality TV show. I said, what's reality TV? He said, well, you know, it's like Survivor. I said, Survivor? Mm-hmm. I think I think I know about that. That's that show where the people like live on an island or something. He goes, yeah, we make that show. It's the number one TV show in America. I said, okay, tell me about this. And I started to learn about it. He goes, we're gonna make this new show. It's about a casino in Vegas. And it's about these two guys taking over this casino and they want to bring back the glory days of the of the Rat Pack and stuff. And we want to we want to make, you know, contemporary recordings of, older songs. He said, well, do you know how to do that? And I lied and said, yes. And that's how it started. I figured it out. That's amazing. (laughs) You you took, you took the risk and it paid off. Uh, Yeah. You know, this is, this is something you and I talk about in your class. Right. It's something we talked about at lunch. It's something you and I talk about ever since we've known each other. What is the purpose of, of what you do every day? And in my particular case, in that moment, it was a blessing of the highest order that somebody asked me about something that I knew about, but I'd never done. So that gave me an enormous opportunity to channel life experience into something that I was clever enough to see that I had the right knowledge base to do that. And then the only leap of faith it took was getting over my fear that I would fail at doing it, right? Because I knew in my heart that I was always going to be the smartest person in the room in this group of people about what I knew about. So even the times when I didn't know something, I'd be able to hold people at bay long enough to figure it out. And that's what really tipped me off to the fact that I should risk it, was that you always need a moment. I mean, like, nobody knows everything and nobody gets everything right the first time. And this kind of harkens back to stuff we've talked about in your class, which is how do you make space? You talked about it as we walked up to the door this morning. Right. How do, how do you make space when you're stressed, when you're uptight, when you can't think straight? What allows you, what gives you the opportunity? Uh, and I've said this in your class. 
the leader of our voice band, who's one of the best musicians I've ever met, Paul Murkovich, he is a true musical god, as far as I'm concerned. When he gets an an inexperienced singer or musician around him, he'll say sometimes, don't worry about it. You have more time between the notes than you think. And I heard him say it like very early on when we first started working together. And it's always been something that I could extrapolate out of into, I mean, I could, you know, I've taken that into my life and thought about it a lot. That when you, as you get better at something, time slows down. And as time slows down, you have more space. And when you have more space, you make better decisions. You use your knowledge better. You're wiser. And and I think that's what, I, I don't know what music and mindfulness is. I don't meditate. But I certainly am cognizant of the idea that if you listen properly, and if you slow things down, you have a better chance of fulfilling your potential. Well, you don't know the formalities of music and mindfulness, but you practice your own version. You have your own Zen. We don't have a term for it yet, but what you're just saying right now in talking about creating space between what's happening and your reaction and your response to what's happening, to have a relationship to your experience rather than being engulfed by it, you're able to do that because of the confidence that you have in your foundation of knowledge, in a field where you feel that you have authority because you have more knowledge than other people. But you're also, I think, downplaying a little bit uh, the range of what you have to deal with because you're not only dealing with musical issues, you're also dealing with personalities. And the personalities may not recognize that you might not, you might know more about a certain situation than they do. And you're thrown into situations that have to do with other things besides just music, right? A hundred percent. I mean, that that is in fact why the job's worth doing. If it was just music, it would have gotten old by now. Managing people is awesome. It's a beautiful feeling. Look, what's the best feeling if Hannah says to you, Hannah, my co-producer. Hannah, your co-producer who's sitting on the couch. If Hannah were to say to you, you know, oh, you give her a gift at the holidays and she writes you a note and says, you're the best boss or working with you is great or I've learned so much working for you. Doesn't that make you feel incredible? I live for that. Exactly. So, you know, at my point in my career and my age, the best thing that happens every day is when somebody who is in my team feels like they grew or had some great experience as a result of being part of the team. That is the best thing. There's no question about it. And it happened yesterday. We gave gifts and stuff. And I got a note when I got home from the from my right-hand person who basically said, you know, I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to work for you. I mean, it's not the truth, but just that somebody would say that to you, right? It's like, that's a pretty great thing to have said to you. Like, I don't want it to be because she likes me. I want it to be because she feels like she's growing. This opportunity in her life is making her a better person, a better potential colleague, and all those things. I'm not trying to be nice to her. I'm trying to be her boss. But at the same time, the personal part of it is it really leaks into it, right? So this is one of the tricks about it. That's why I probably didn't become a famous business person. Uh, I get lost in the human part of it pretty significantly. Yeah, you do. I mean, uh, the reason I love to have you- That's what I like. Yeah. And the reason I love to have you in the class 
and I love knowing you is because you're uh, one of the few people that I know. I mean, there's there's more than one, right. but uh, your nature is very compassionate and ethical, and you have a lot of integrity, and you care about people, and you may not, again, practice formally mindfulness, but the consequences of having a practice of mindfulness, you incarnate practices like being kind to people, being honest to people, and your priorities. So doing something, turning down gigs if they're going to compromise your principles. And um, I do want to get into the Zen of Clyde uh, <laughs> because you have other uh, reigning, you have other reigning principles other than you know being a fair boss, etc. Uh, you are in a job producing this show with yeah. all these people, uh, the talent. Oh, yeah. We have incredible – I mean, I have incredible opportunities. And I get to work with Gwen Stefani. I mean, like, believe me when I tell you, she is an amazing person. Forget about her, the artist and the hit record she's made and everything. I mean, she's just a person who – she's been doing this since she was a kid and how she's maintained – like. I work with Kelly Clarkson. She's one of the nicest people you've ever met in your life. You talk about a person who just exudes like human stuff. So we've been really, really lucky. I mean. Okay. But now, but now let's talk about not the nicest people or not the most pleasant situations. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle situations that aren't so wonderful? And you, you, you've got to be thrown into those all the time because yeah. of the pressures of running a show every week like that. Okay. So, so, so do I get to really talk about this? Some of the Zen of Clyde. Yeah. How do you deal with this? Well, I'm, first I'm, I'm going to say, because you know one of the things I really believe in, a couple of funny things. One day I was sitting with our showrunner, who is one of the most successful women in, in Hollywood, in my opinion, certainly in her field. And we had our feet up on the desk and we were drinking a glass of wine and we were listening to music together. And she looked over at me, she goes, we're working. And we both just broke up laughing. And I said, yeah, this is work. And, it, and it's kind of at the core of what I think is the point. The point is that you're at your best when you're doing something you absolutely love in a moment when you actually should be doing it. And you're doing it completely without any clear reason for why you're doing it right then. And you're just doing it. It's like, we're listening to music because that's, we're in a music show and that's, and we're, we have our feet up because we finally got the show made. And now we're doing what started it all, which is we're sharing a moment with something we love, which is music. And that's the amount of love we try to put into the show. And if it's not too corny. So around that is budget, schedule, personalities, reluctant celebrities, you know, is a sea of stuff that you could just lose yourself in any time. If you dive into that and you, you're not wearing like a, your tank, you could drown right there, Right. So how do you do that? How do you dive in every day, every week, every episode, every hour of television and not, and, and I watched it. You know, I, I, she's, but so how do you do it? I'm, I'm suspended on the edge of my chair. Well, the first thing is that you try not to always react. The two things we really talk about a lot. We try to do, sometimes we try to do nothing uh -huh. when it seems like something needs to happen because we've come to the conclusion and I've certainly decided this. 
that it takes incredible courage, it takes incredible forethought, and incredible patience to sometimes not act. Particularly because the way we've all been brought up in the Western society, especially as a young person, uh, my from the generation of your dad and my dad, almost the same generation, right. it was work ethic was everything. Like do your work, go to your job, take care of your family, do the right thing. And it never dawned on me until later that there was another element to that, which is don't react. Don't immediately take the bait. Don't always listen to the story and believe it at face value. Take a second. Just like we were talking about music, there's more time than you think. If you are, if you're really pure, if you're really paying attention, there's a little bit more time than you think. Step back. The best action is not the first action. The best place to time to respond is not right now. Maybe the better time to respond is a minute from now. And in that minute, in that space, the molecules are going to do something different than they're doing right now. Because right now they're very hot and on fire, but they might start to cool off. And maybe you, maybe nothing is the right action. So yeah, we really believe in that. I really believe in it. I've tried to use it in parenting. I've tried to learn that when my daughter is, when something's really, really, you know, trying to help her understand, like, don't walk into your exam until you've stopped and given yourself the space to be there. Like, don't just run in there full of your stress, your anxiety. Even if all you get is two minutes, breathe. I mean, like, it sounds so silly, but it's so true. So we try to apply that to the show. And then the second part of it is the power of no, which I've talked about in every class you and I have ever done together. Mm-hmm. And the power of no seems before obvious. Before we get into the power of okay. no, I just, I just, I'm so I just, sorry. that's just a beautiful, a beautiful conclusion about stepping back, pausing, hit the pause button, right? And have that space between you and don't react automatically like you habitually do and all that stuff. You came to it just through wisdom, through life experience. Oh, or I was beaten down into beaten realizing down, yeah. that that I I had too many. I I I've I've had panic attacks. I've had bad panic attacks in my life, and that that really in my doctor doctor the my wonderful doctor doctor Gold. I doubt he's alive anymore. This so many years ago, he was an upright bass player. He was an excellent jazz player, and he was my family. Doc, he was my GP. How I met him, I don't know. He was in Century City. His name was Ralph Gold. Mm-hmm. He was the, one of the best human beings I ever met in my life. Tall, skinny, Ichabod Crane kind of a guy. Used to play over at the jazz kitchen, play bass, sit in with mm-hmm. people all the time. And I had these terrible panic attacks. This is when I was going to Dick Rose School of Music. This is a long time ago. And I went to see him. You know, I said, Dr. Gold, I, I have panic attacks. He goes, is there something in your life you're not happy about? He said, I said, I, I don't know. He goes, are you in a relationship that in which you have you're being dishonest about things? I said, "Well, what's that got to do with what's going on in my life? I'm having panic attacks." He goes, "Are you being really honest with yourself about your life?" And I just never ever had thought about it. I never equated my mental health to that particular thing. Like, am I being honest? Am I telling the truth to myself about what I'm doing? Or am I just managing to get around the side of the denial? Is, the, is it just me and the denial kind of like going, you know, around the sides? 
Am I really looking right into the center of and admitting that I don't like that, but I keep doing it? Or that person in my life shouldn't be in my life, but I let them be in my life anyhow because I can manage it. It's okay. So that's the first time I ever got tipped off to this. And yeah, it goes all the way back to that. So in the, in the, in, in the moment of the show, I try to remember those things. So it, I paid my dues just like everybody else did, you know, to get to at least some awareness that you can't react all the time. Your first move can't always be, get me the fire extinguisher. Yeah, maybe there's no fire. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's not a fire at all. Maybe it's just somebody lit a match. And and that happens a lot in my in my world because that is a big part of my job. It's, 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 as I like to say, if if somebody calls me, it's usually because it's a problem. So you think you called it at one time the art of doing nothing? Yeah, well, the art of yeah. doing nothing is to yeah. me the other side of that, yeah. which is the deeper part of this. It's, I don't want to, you know, like all the stuff we're talking about, I don't want to come off as some sort of like fake intellectual. Like I don't understand the intellectual part of it. I don't, I didn't study psychology. I'm, you know, I'm just talking about my experience. Yeah. And my experience of it is that, yeah, the art of no, it goes, the art of doing nothing and the art of no are related. Okay. Okay. You want to go into the art of no. no. I'm just saying the so, two of them are yeah. related. Yes. In that, sometimes in that moment, you realize that the right answer is flatline. No. I'm not taking the bait. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking that. I'm not having that conversation. I'm not going to fight that fight. Well, you know, there's a whole training around that in Tibetan Buddhism. It's called the action of non-action. I've never heard of that, but yeah. it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And of course, Zen has its uh, own version of non-doing, just being. But I mean, I grew up in the 60s. So, I mean, these are probably all things that were, you know, that I've heard. It's funny. I, mm -hmm. And this is a total tangent. I apologize. But when I realized I was coming over here today to talk, I thought, I wonder what are the things in my life that pointed me in the direction of where I am right now. And I remember my mom on the wall of uh, our family room in my little house in Indiana where we grew up. There was a poster of, the, you know, remember that famous poster, Hate Ashbury? You know, it's like sure. the, the corner of Hate sure, and Ashbury. Sure. So that poster was up there. Now, my mom was not, she didn't smoke pot or wasn't unusual in any way. But it dawned on me today, while driving over here, that poster, which my mom put up there in like 1968, 69, uh, really spoke volumes about my relationship with my mom. A lot of what I've done in my life is a reaction to what I think is my awareness that my mom was probably the freest spirit person I knew of all the people I grew up with in Indiana. My mom was the most truly a free spirit. What that meant in those days, what my mom would call a free spirit which nobody really uses that expression today, I don't think very much. Mm -hmm. But in the 60s, married, two kids, living in a small house in Indianapolis, you know, my dad, a working dad, mom, stay-at-home mom. Then she got her first job. She started working. You know, she worked as a young woman, of course. Now she was working three days a week. And I think what I, I realize now that poster wasn't for me. That was for her. That was my mom's way of saying to herself, there's more. She was fascinated with hippies. Janis Joplin was like her favorite. You know, she just she thought Janis Joplin spoke volumes about maybe about the experience of being a woman and not being tied down to the plan as it was would be in the 50s and 60s in America, you know? So 
I'm sorry, it was a digression, but it is a digression related to how I got to where I think I am, which is I, I think that was really the message to me. I think my mom was subtly saying to me, the same way when I decided to quit college, my mom never picked up the phone ever and called and said, you should go back to college. Not once. She never said a word. She just said, it'll be okay. Do what you want. You don't want to go to college? Don't go to college. You want to live in Guatemala for two years? Live in Guatemala for two years. So some of that kind of acceptance, open-heartedness yeah. rubbed off on you. I think a lot and, of it. And it was the uh, age in which we grew up. You know, Baba Ram Das, you know, be here now, all these yeah. things. You heard the expressions all the time. And you had to, because I wasn't really an Eastern philosophy guy, I didn't practice the Tao, I didn't really understand the I Ching, I would just hear the slogans and then right. the slogans became part of my life. And then I had to figure out what they meant, right? Which is what it's all about. Like, be here now, it's a wonderful slogan. It means yeah. something, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know who Baba Ramdas is. Of, of course. course I know Ramdas. Yeah. I mean So uh, you know, those things yeah. were everywhere when we were kids. They were plastered everywhere. On the side of your cigarette papers that you rolled yeah. your joints with. But it's, you had to go through the Wu Tang clan to get to that point. Well, I where think it became that, a reality for I, you. I will I will say, and and I don't want to make more evidence because it sounds almost wrong to say it, but when I met Riza was a really important time in my life because music was changing, but what was mostly changing is that the culture of hip hop, which you were involved in the seminal moments of the culture of hip hop. That's right. I'm an OG. You're an OG for real. And so I meeting, you know, that was my window in. Up until that time, I was a rock and roll pop guy. And when I met, when I met Wu-Tang Clan, I met RZA, it was an eye opener. It was like, you were missing a whole part of music and the culture. You're just dead to it. I mean, I thought the last time I listened to spoken word music was dead poets. You know what I mean? Last poets, like in 1968. They were great. They were very yeah. important. So, I mean, they're very important, right? Yeah. I was not an aficionado of, of current hip hop in 1991, 92, when I moved to New York. I knew it existed. I understood it. I listened to the records. I probably listened. Was MC Light already making records by then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. She, she so I knew the great. hits, you know, yeah. but I didn't understand anything about the how the music was made, the culture. I just right. didn't. I was out here in LA making pop records right. and it wasn't my world, you know? But now I want to I want to cycle back to something okay. we were talking about getting under the hood. You mentioned a few minutes ago, reluctant celebrities. So how do you deal with a reluctant celebrity? Is this the celebrity reluctant because they don't want to do what you want them to do? The first thing I have to say, and, I, and I, I say this all the time, I'm going to say it right now. I work in a business that's completely driven by stars. And I have the utmost respect for stars for a very specific reason. And I remember a friend of mine who worked for Madonna saying that Madonna was an incredibly hard boss, that she really drove people to excel at their jobs all the time. And the demands were real. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, Madonna is giving work to hundreds of people. This is, of course, at the height of her career, maybe even 500 people a year, a thousand. I don't know how many people, right. when you think about the record label, all the people were right. making their living on the back of this one woman. Her stardom was driving tours and record sales and right. merchandise and and wardrobe people and background singers right. and all these people. And I, that's when it... That helped me. Like, then I understood. And I still feel that way about the business. The business is driven by stars. You take the stars away from our business, this all ends. All of it. Done. Toast. Nobody cares. We are in an industry that's driven by stars. 
Does that justify stars mistreating people? Of course not. That's actually what I figure we're going to talk about, which is it doesn't justify anything. But it's important to remember that that's the industry we're in. Okay, we're in I mean, an industry in which you write music for TV. The TV show has a star. Without the, Take the stars out of the TV show. The show is not a show. It's just a TV thing. Put stars in it and people watch it. Those people, sometimes the stars weren't famous and they become famous from being on the show. But eventually, the stars are what people want. For whatever reason. It's not right. my, I'm right. not judging it on any level. Right. So, there are people I've met in my career who have an uncanny ability to communicate with stars. An uncanny ability. And they know instinctively how to do that. And when I started The Voice, I was pretty good at it. And I become better at it. And a lot of it stems from the ability to tell the truth. And so what being on The Voice has helped me do the most is learn to be truthful. You start out, how does truth come into your life? You start out by being true to yourself. That's really hard. If you get over that particular bridge, you can pretty much from there see the course and understand it. But that, By the way, some people listening to this mm -hmm. might be cynical about what you're saying, about I hope telling so. the truth. Yeah. Uh, and I could be a very skeptical person myself, yeah. but since I know you, um, I believe you. I mean, if I didn't know you and I was listening to this, I, I would be very skeptical but that remember, you're not kissing I, ass. I'm not saying if I didn't like you and I was nice to you, I'm not talking about that. That's got nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with personal stuff. It has to do with being true about the moment in which you're in. Like I walk into somebody's trailer and they want to do X. And I think the why is a better idea. I have to make two choices. I can either think, I'm going to get them to why. Let me see how I'm going to do this. Let me hang around with X for a while. But I know that Y is the right answer. And I want them to get to Y, but I can't really get in and say, your X is ugly, my Y is pretty, let's do Y. I can't do that. I'll get thrown out. I'll get fired. I mean, that's okay. not going to work. Right. So what's my job in that moment? My job is to convey what needs to happen in such a way that the other person eventually comes to the conclusion that doing it is a good thing to do. That's called building a consensus. That's not lying. My job is a consensus building job. That's what I do every minute of my job. It never stops. I have people from the network. I have people who run the show. I have people who are choosing music. I have singers singing. Somebody has got to stand in the middle of all that and just have a conversation about it. If I care terribly about what the final answer is, that's a problem. Then what happens? Well, that's when you really have, that's called ego. And that's really what we're talking about. Okay. Right? Okay. Because in the terms of what we are interested in, you, I know you, I know what interests you and what interests me, is that I'm not pretending that I'm egoless. I just said on this darn microphone how great I felt when somebody who worked for me told me they thought I did a good job with their career and helping them. So that was all ego. Uh, no, but it is. It's, it's, what it's, I'm saying ego is that, under, it's ego that's moderated. But I'm just it's saying good that ego. when you- There's when, good ego and there's bad ego. That's good ego, but you, go ahead. You 
produce records for a living. What is the single most important quality to be a successful record producer, in your opinion? Just tell me. It depends. It depends on, on the genre that you're working in, and it depends on the artist that you're working with. I mean, when you're working with the art, your job as a producer is to make the artist sound as good as possible. It's to elicit the best possible performance out of that artist, and it's not about your ego. It's about making the artist sound good. That's your number one priority. And how do you separate what you think is good from what you think is going to make the best record if what you think is going to make the best record, what they want anyway, is not what you want? Well, I've only had that problem uh, in with rock band, which is a different dynamic because the respect level that I've had to deal with, with professional singers that have been successful are deferring to the producer and the producer tells you you should sing it this way. Um, I don't care who, it, people with, with reputations as being terrible to work with, like Bobby Brown, let's say, or Sheena Easton, they all took, they just wanted it to be the best possible performance it could be. So they listened to you because they respect that. And they. And they, how did you get the respect? I think from your track record and the way you treat them. Correct. So the track record aside, Right. The way you treat them, and what's at the core of the way you treat them? Respect. Respect for them, it, and we want the same thing. So my question to you is that even if you didn't like the person, you could still treat them with respect, right? If you don't like them? Yeah, if you physically find them abhorrent. <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to remember pre-meditation um, and right. post-meditation. I mean, when you've been practicing for so many years, you respect everybody no matter what for their um, their divine spark inside of them. Um, and because that they are you, there's no real separation ultimately between you and anybody else. It's not a matter of I'm right and you're wrong. It's a matter of we both want the same thing. We all want the same thing. We want the best possible record. Okay, so that's my job. So that's what I do. I just don't have... I, I don't How'd I do, I, by the way? This is tough. You're a tough interviewer. No, but it's <laughs> the answers are really good and solid. And also what's interesting about it to me is that what I was kind of driving at, for my word for it, is consensus. Like, in order for everybody to walk out of the studio at the end of the night feeling good about the experience, everybody has to feel as if they got some slice of what they were looking for. But does a celebrity in your case, first of all, you're dealing with a lot more people than producer and artist or producer. Because even if you're producing a but group- But I deal with them as as individuals. I don't really deal with them uh, as a group I was just gonna say, when you're producing a group, it could be like you yeah, know, yeah, five yeah. people no, in a group, no, you're this, dealing with one at a time. I'm fascinated by the, the divine spark. You were saying about people being, you know, as one. I mean, these are not things that are part of my lexicon, you know? What I'm trying to say about this is, and the reason I ask you these questions, is that for me, the part of my job that's the most exhausting and the most fun is building consensus. Like, I actually think that's what I was put on the planet to do. If I were going to be asked specifically, what is it that I'm good at? I don't think I'm really good at music, though I get a certain amount of credit for it. I don't really think I'm good at a lot of the stuff, but I really love consensus building. Like, I love the idea that I can be in a room with three or four people with disparate ideas and I can help facilitate everybody arriving at a place where when everybody walks out of the room, they feel better. And how do you do that? 
I actually really like human beings, and it is important. I, I, I have this sense that there are people who don't like human beings as much as I do. And I think that's when somebody says to me, like, you're a compassionate, you know, you called me compassionate. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm particularly compassionate. I think I just like people. So, and it's funny because I'm also can be very shy. So when I come into that situation, I tend to come in liking people, but I'm also kind of shy. I don't tend to walk into the room with very much ego. So I tend to walk in the room and sort of sit in the corner for a while, but I seem to have this other ability to appear as if I'm happy to be there with those people. So because I need time to feel secure in the moment. It's weird. It's just how I am. So in the course of doing that, I've I've learned to listen better. Uh, My biggest problem was that I love to talk, but I wasn't necessarily a great listener. So I had to work really hard. And I'm still not, my wife says I'm still not very good at it, but I had to work hard to learn to listen better. Okay. And, And obviously the most important part of consensus building is listening. Mm-hmm. If you're not listening, and it's apparent that you're not listening, no one trusts you. And that what, what does it take to build consensus? Is building trust. How do you build trust? By listening. And so, the reason you're a good listener, or you became a good listener? Or I'm better than I used to be. Better than you used to be? You had the potential because you're a musician. And musicians are listeners. And that's probably yeah. full circle on what yeah. is the reason we're having this conversation. Right. And a lot of times musicians don't make that connection. They don't connect to their ability to listen to anything. It took you a while, but you made that connection. The art of deep listening. That's another It probably also explains why I wasn't a great player, because I probably wasn't a great listener. And, and I think I recognize that. One important point about listening. To be a good listener, you not only have to listen to what the person is saying, but you're listening to other characteristics, the tone of voice, right? The inflections and what they're not saying. So that's a a practice and an art that you've been able to adapt. I'm better at knowing what they're not saying than listening to what they're saying. That's for sure. It's like Miles Davis said, listen to the notes that aren't being played. Right, which is like saying, listen to the space in between the notes. I mean, it's all related. Right. And And I like what you're saying a lot, I, I'm going to think about it a lot when I drive away from here. The relationship between listening to people and listening to music and, and listening deeply. Because it is true, while I never, I've never had the ability to play really well, I've always had the ability to listen really well to music. So I'm still hanging on the edge of my seat to hear, if you want why? And the reluctant celebrity wants X. Uh-huh. If at the end of the conversation, at the end of the session, the celebrity is not moving from X, they're not going to Y. Do you just say, okay, I lost this one. That's cool. I just, I'll let go. Well, first of all, we all know it's not black and white. So let's just get that out of the way. Okay. All right. There's all sorts of gray. And, and there's such a thing as a pyrrhic victory. So you have to be cognizant of that at all times. And you don't want to destroy the house just because you felt like you had to dig in the basement. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. 
So in other words, you give up on the why. I wouldn't say you give up on the why. I would say that what is consensus really? Consensus is getting everybody within reason to reach a place where they're comfortable with the outcome. And if you hold on too much the hope for result, sometimes you miss getting to the outcome. And that's really what I would say. Like you can walk into a meeting absolutely sure you're right and walk out of that meeting and realize that you were wrong. You can walk into a meeting absolutely sure that you're right and walk out of that meeting having everybody having agreed with you. That's not always the best result. Getting people to an outcome where everybody can look at each other and go, all right, I'm okay with this outcome is a better result than getting your way. Uh That's my point. That's a big... That's a big lesson. That's my that's my belief as a television executive right. on a TV show, uh, as a dad, right. as a friend, right. is that I'm doing myself a disservice if I hang too long onto what I want right. instead of being concerned about what everybody arrives at. Right. Because when everybody is happy to be doing this together, the result in the end is going to be better than me right now getting this thing. Oh, you've got to do this song. I need you to wear this thing. I need to behave this way. I need you to go to bed now. All that stuff is driven by my madness that I've got to, I got to get what I want. And the fact that I think it's right doesn't make it right. And the fact that I want it doesn't make it good. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I read somewhere that the question is you have a choice. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? So in well, your case, you want to be happy. Well, marriage is yeah. all about that, right? <laughs> I mean, it yeah. is. It is. I mean, if any you, any kind of relationship that's close or you know crucial, like your relationship with your reluctant celebrities, that it's the same principle. You want to be right or you want to be happy? Yeah, you, and, and and consensus to you. I never heard it put that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And it's another key wisdom point. So I would say this about our specific circumstance. You know, the word reluctant is is a little bit harsh. I'm going to rephrase it because I said it jokingly, and now we're sort of- I'm saying it jokingly, too. I know, but I don't want want to, I want to be clear about what I'm saying. You can hardly expect people to want to do everything that you ask them to do. And in TV, there's more of that than you can imagine. We want you to be over there. We want you to say this. We want you to behave like this. And that's a lot to ask of people who are already famous. It's understandable that everybody doesn't jump up and go, yes, sir, I'm going to do that right now. They're stars. They have things that they're concerned about, that are right things to concern about, their image, the way they're perceived. That, that's how they make their living. So all I'm talking about really is not so much reluctance as it is they have an opinion And I'm tasked with helping them see that there's another way to do it and that getting them to get to that place is part of my task. And And that it isn't so much what I want, it's what's best for the show. Okay, so if you know this is best for the show, why? And they don't want to do why, even though you know it's best for the show, then what do you do? That's a really difficult question to answer properly because you have to there's a certain amount of trial and error. 
There's a certain amount of, yes, occasionally you just put your head in your hands and go, okay, I've seen, I've seen the people I work for do that. Mm-hmm. Right now, the best thing to do is to be okay with something because later on you can perceive, and this is related to doing nothing, that there's going to be a moment where something is going to be more important than it is right now. And if you spend all of your political capital in this moment, when that future moment mm. comes, you will not be in a position to be able to get the outcome that you right. really will require in that moment. So you may have to just swallow your pride, look a scan uh, the other way, whatever, mm. to keep, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, keep the peace, do whatever it mm. is. I mean, I don't, you can't make more out of it than it is. A lot of stuff that happens in our industry is expediency driven right and and that's okay that's kind of what we've been talking about i feel like for the last hour is that like there's no use pretending like there's not an expedience element in all this stuff of course there is like the network's paying millions of dollars and people are being paid millions of dollars and the show has to go on the air and i mean i there isn't room for my ego and all that Right, and I'm just at the this level, and there's people above me and people above me there, right? So, at the end of the day, there has to be trust. So, which celebrity gives you the most problems? Well, <laughs> my daughter. Your daughter yeah. gives well. Second to your daughter, which celebrity is just the the hardest to work with? That's obviously not a question I'm going to answer. Okay, this is go. What do they call this? The lightning round. So, who's the worst singer that ever was on the Voice? <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Okay, tell us how exactly the voice is fixed. How do, how do they fix this contest? Okay, let's say I want to get on the voice. What advice would you give to me? Besides, I should have a good the voice. The first thing I would get, if you want to get on the voice, the first thing I would tell you is don't go around saying to people the voice is fixed. That would be mean. Okay, well, okay. Let's say I want to get on the voice. By the and, way, yeah, it's not. Of course it's not. The people are voting for it, right? They they text No, no, it. believe me. It's it's so fairness is such a huge part of our job. It's so crazy. It's a big thing, like SEC level thing. You have to be It's a big it's a it's one of the most commonly word used words on a TV show like ours. You have to be fair all the time. So we've been focusing on this in terms of TV shows, the voice. Right. But you also work on another show, which I hear really great things about, called yes. Songland. So we're really excited about Songland. I can should I tell a tiny bit about it? Yeah, what it's what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been sort of the opinion of me working in television that's music oriented that the Holy Grail would be able to, if you could create a TV show that was about songwriting and about people writing songs. And people have tried, but it's very difficult because. Songwriting itself is inherently sort of boring. Like if you just put a camera in here when you were writing a song, oh. that's not TV. Mm-hmm. It's just not even podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's boring. It's just people sitting around going, well, what do you think about this? Here, let me play you this chord. Right. Oh, I like that piece of lyric. That's that's not going to make TV show. So the executive producer of The Voice, one of them, uh, was brought an idea by a famous musician named Dave Stewart from Eurythmics. Sure. And he was introduced to her, to Audrey. And he said, I, I think I want to talk to you about this idea I have to make an, I, a music show that's a little bit Shark Tank and a little bit like a performance show. But basically, 
songwriting and songs have become so important. Like the songwriters are as important as the artists now with the way pop radio goes. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't you have a show about the marketplace of songs? And that was the gem of the idea between the two of them. It took them three or four years to develop the idea. I was in a lot of the development meetings because the executive producer is also the executive producer of The Voice. And I, I, you know, I do a lot of work with her. So I knew a lot about what was going on. The show had to be morphed a lot. It figured out how to make it exciting enough and interesting enough to be a primetime show. And we made the first season of it, we made for NBC. And we did well enough to get picked up. And we're making the show again right now. We're just, um, they're just signing the new group of uh, stars who are going to be on the show. And we have three record producers who are the same on every episode. They listen to original songs that are played to them by real songwriters that we find. Three songs get picked and they get assigned to one of each of the producers. And there's a guest artist like we had, John Legend was a guest artist in one of the episodes last season. And then he assigns three songs, one each to one to Ryan Tedder, who's a famous record producer from One Republic, but is produced, right. he wrote and produced Halo and Already Gone and so many hits. And uh, Sucker for uh, Jonas Brothers and and Esther Dean, who is a co-writer on a lot of Rihanna's biggest hits, and Shane McAnally, who's a probably the hottest songwriter, certainly one of the hottest songwriters in Nashville right now. He's a huge guy, writes a lot of Casey Musgraves, Old Dominion hits. He's a big writer producer. They sit in the panel, they listen to the songs, and then they each get assigned a song. Then they go away and they make a version of the song. They rewrite it. They produce a demo. And we come back in, the artist performs that demo with a band and the backing track. And the guest artist picks one of the songs to record for his or her next recording. Yeah, somebody told me. It's, it's yeah. really cool. It's really fun. And, and, it, and, and the looks on people's face who aren't in our industry when we're shooting and they hear people talking about how music is written and how people think about music, mm-hmm. it's just, it's a revelation to people. Like, if you came you would find it fascinating, which is not something I would say about The Voice. You mean if I was on the show? No, if you just came and visited oh, me. Oh, you're going to invite me to the, uh, yeah, on the show? Yeah, stop by any time. Oh, terrific. <laughs> but yeah. I'm saying if you were sitting there and listening to them dissect a piece of music and why the song's good and what's wrong with the song and how to make it better, you would you would enjoy it. It's what you do. It's the same way you decide. Like, should I, the baseline do this? Oh, I see what you're saying. I'd identify with the process. Heavily. Uh-huh. Well, now I heard somebody told me, another songwriter that, that came in here to, to write, they said, um, yeah, the song that won or something is a really good song. And, and they really enjoyed it. It's a really, really good song. I really like that song. But they wrote it like it's a professional songwriters that are writing it, right? They're, they're semi-professionals who come in are not yet established people, right? So okay. they come in with their song. And they play it, and then they go into a studio and they co-write with these established people, right. so the new version is up to the next level, or else the show wouldn't work. Right. But my question is, you you've got this incredible workload on the Voice. Mm-hmm. When when you're working in TV, don't ask me how we're going to do it at the same time because I have no idea. But it's going to happen. In fact, I came here today to speak with you on your mind, music, and mindfulness podcast instead of being at my office going to a two-hour song meeting for songland and i told them that i could not do that because i had a prior commitment to you i and i wasn't going to drop my commitment 
I'm very grateful. We don't be grateful, but I'm just telling you. I am grateful. I don't know how we're going to do it all. I learned so much, (laughs) and this is amazing to me. The Zen of Clyde. I mean, this is a whole. (laughs) This is a whole religion, and it's not a religion. And uh, I, I, you know, I love. I'm just one. The fact that you are an example. You know, you prove that this is very important to me. We talked about what's important to us. It's important to me that there's somebody who's as successful as you are, who's world, who's not a celebrity, but should be, um, who's incredible, <laughs> working on the number. I don't care what you say. I've always heard it was the number one show in the world. And yet, obviously, you have the wisdom in order to manage everything you need to manage and be successful and are willing to share that wisdom. But you are a ethical, honest person that cares about people. And I just want to show the world that it's possible to be successful in music and also be a good person at the same time. Well, I liked what you said to me when I first asked you about what your book was about. You probably say lots of different stuff. But you told me that a lot of people who play music for a living and are in music for a living and do music for a living live under a lot of performance anxiety. And I never really thought about it before, but I knew it was one of the reasons that I didn't go farther in music once you said it to me. And I remember playing at Club 88 or Madame Wong's in my little shitty bands and how nervous I used to get before I would go out on stage, you know, just afraid that I'm going to forget a chord or I'm going to forget how a song, and even though the songs only had three chords most of the time and they were all eighth notes, you know, you still got nervous. So I think, wow, and I wasn't really a pro. I was just a guy who want, had a dream. What it must be like to be a professional musician on so many different levels, the amount of anxiety sitting there in the orchestra and like, it's getting to the part of the thing where you're going to have your moment, like nobody else is going to be playing and you're going to be the person going, eh. all it takes is one bum note to like, for the whole thing to fall apart. So and I thought about it a lot. It's like, and then I try to extrapolate out of that to my own life. You know, what is my version of that? And that version, like, what's that feeling, that sinking feeling? You wake up at eight in the morning or six in the morning or whatever, and you think, I, I just went through it, Richard. Seriously, I'm going to end with this. Like, I knew something had to be done on January 4th. I know this had to be done on January 4th since October. This is personally or for the show? For the show. For the show. For the voice. For the voice. And I knew it would be practically impossible to get people who are in the middle of making the season we're making right now, we finished last night, season 17, thinking about season 18 in January. But I could hear the clock ticking the whole time. Many mornings I woke up with that incredible anxiety of like, how am I going to get this done? Forget about the rest of it. Just forget about if it's done right or well, or I'm happy, or people are happy. How am I going to actually get it done. I'm here to tell you today, it's done. I would love to be able to tell you how I did it. And I did, and to a certain extent, I did it not bragging. I did it by myself because it was my task to do. And the person who I work for, nominally speaking, I said to them, you're not going to be involved. You're going to tell me you're involved but you and I should stop pretending like you're going to be involved. You're not going to be involved, except at key moments, but that's going to be okay for both of us. In order for me to do it, I have to do it my way. And for you to be able to make the show in January, it needs to happen. And that's kind of what I get from what you were saying, is that you don't want to dull 
the anxiety. You don't want people to become so mindful. I'm kidding, but you don't want people to become so disengaged from it that they become numb to the anxiety because the anxiety is part of what gets the grease on your fingers. That's part of what gets the sound out of the speakers. That's part of what gets the bent note out of the guitar. And what you're talking about is something subtle, which is if you can, you should be able to maintain all of that performance, power performance and that energy and that if anything should allow you to focus it better, you should become better. You should be able to express yourself better if you feel safer inside, if you feel more attuned inside, if you feel more at peace. I don't know what that exactly means. And that's what I think your message is to me. Cool. That you shouldn't lose your edge. Right. You didn't lose your edge. No. You're the same edgy guy you always were. I hope so. No, you haven't changed. Right. I bet you haven't. But something inside of you has changed that's allowed you to maybe extend your career, do this better than ever, hit your hit your goals. And that, kudos to you. I mean, it's worth writing a book about. It's worth doing. It's worth going and speaking at ASCAP about. You know, if you one person comes out of that room and goes, I got that. Well, that's, that's, very, that's very kind of you. Again, you turned it around on me but uh, this time that was fun that was a uh, that was a uh, a willing celebrity whatever it was <laughs> it was a fun ride um by the way clyde lieberman has never done a podcast before yeah you never. refuse interviews you've got the washington <laughs> post you got political everybody knocking they want to talk to the guy. producer of the voice but you agreed to come on this podcast and tell the the staff of The Voice and staff of Songland who are waiting with bated breath for you to come back that you had to come and do this podcast. I, I'm so I grateful. was honored to be asked. I appreciate that. Honored to have served. Thank you so much, Clyde. Thank you so much, Richard. And uh, until next time. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Beautiful. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. Okay, I hope that was as captivating for you as it was for me. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review and a rating. Hopefully it's a good rating. And please share it with your friends and anyone else you think might benefit from listening to us. Even if they're not your friends, you can follow, subscribe to us at Wolf in Tune. I want to thank my crack team, Lonnie Rinaldo, Chase Crocher, and my co-producer, Hannah Bowers. Until next time, we hope you stay in a higher octave. And let's stay in tune.